Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the Gospel. Opened up there, please do to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our series entitled Unshakable. And this whole series is really about hope. And so I'll start there again today. What is it that you are hoping for right now, in this moment, in your conscious thought? What is it that you are hoping for this morning? I'm sure you are not unaware that 37 days from now is the presidential election. Does that make any of you nervous, fill any of you with anxiety, get you frustrated or angry or make you want to check out? What do you really hope for? Hope is a powerful thing. There's a proverb in the word of God that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now the proverb is talking about our physical heart, but it's talking about the physical heart as the center of who we are, not just the physical nature of who we are, but the spiritual nature of who we are as well. So hope deferred makes the heart sick. It means that there's a connection between our hearts, our health, and our hope. Just a silly little example, when we hope for Big Ten football, and it happens, we feel great. It's coming back. If you've known my story at all, I'm from Akron, Ohio. And so that means that when the Wolverines get smacked by Ohio State again this year, I'm going to feel great. You're going to feel awful. Like the last, like, I don't know, 20 years or so. So this is, this is what happens. There's a connection between our heart and our health and our hope. I have a family member who gets so angry watching the Cleveland Browns that it literally changes his persona. How he interacts with his wife, how he interacts with his children. I'm not saying it as a joke. I'm saying it as a, a, a confrontation, really, against how he lives. And so often, if you're Lions fans, probably the same way. But, but why? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so they pin their hopes on a team. We pin our hopes on a political system. We pin our hopes on things that were never meant to carry our hope. Football games are lighthearted things in the big picture. But the heart gets even more sick when we set our hope on weightier matters, things like our relationships and our careers and our children. Hope is one of the primary themes of this whole letter. This series, Unshakable, is focused on helping us set not our hope on good things, but to set our hope on ultimate things. This is why Peter calls Christians exiles, strangers, Foreigners, people without a permanent home on this earth. If you're at a hotel for a few days, uh, maybe you don't love the paintings on the walls. Maybe you don't love the bland colors. Maybe you're not crazy about the really stiff furniture that you have to sit on. And, and yet, you're not going to go on Wayfair and start ordering new paintings and new furniture while you're there. It's not your home. Maybe... You loved your stay at the hotel. It's, it's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not home, so you don't care that much about it. It's the same for other parts of our lives. Our careers have a place. Marriage has a place. So do family. So does nation. But what's their place in your life, good or ultimate? 
Good or God is a better way of putting it. Because as goods, they're great. As gods, they're disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. So Peter says to us, you're in exile on the earth. Your stay is temporary. It's a hotel. Don't see it as your permanent home. Don't make its goods your permanent things because they will not last. So instead of these perishable things, he says, that we can hope for, Peter says, right out of the gate, we have been born again to a living hope. And through faith, we know that our hope, this living hope, has a name. We just sang his name, that his name is Jesus, and he has a pulse. Right now, he's alive. He's standing at the right hand, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is literally right now alive and well. This is what Peter, uh, this is what Pastor Jim preached about last week. And so Peter continues on this theme by telling us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the return of Jesus Christ. That is something that you can hang the weight of your entire life upon. In fact, that's the whole point of Christianity. That we can hang the weight of our lives upon the hope of Christ's return and the hope of the resurrection. We have to let the power of these words really sink in. Think about what he's actually saying. He says, set your hope fully. Fully. Not half-heartedly. Not consumed with this world and enamored with the things that you see. Set your hope fully. Fully, completely, totally, wholly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you look forward to his return? Do you look forward to the return of Christ more than you look forward to all the other things you can experience in this life? Do you look forward to heaven with as much anticipation as you look forward to other things that you can receive in the here and now? See, one of the issues I believe in American Christianity is our view of heaven is much too close to our view of the earth. That our view of the earth, it's like, yeah, it's pretty good, and heaven's just maybe a little bit better, from like a 9.0 to like a 9.5. And that is robbing us of the motivation to live for Christ in the present, because the reality is our view of heaven ought to be exponentially, infinitely greater than our view of this earth. If we don't think it's going to be infinitely greater, then we have no hope to live for Christ right now, because that's the very thing we receive as we find ourselves following his way through faith. See, Christians long for his return because he's bringing grace. He's bringing grace. When he returns, he's not bringing us fear. He's bringing grace. I remember my brother and I playing uh, golf in our yard when our mom wasn't home. I don't remember how old we were, but we decided to try to hit golf balls from the front yard over the house and try to land it in the backyard. I don't know why we thought this would be a good idea. And with the very first swing... We sent a golf ball, not over the house, but directly through the window of our living room. And I remember my sister, who was older, she came and she said what every older sister says when they're younger, just wait until mom gets home. 
Just wait until she gets home. And you get that sick, pitted feeling in your stomach, and time just moves so slowly, and you just wish that you could turn back the clock. Here's the thing for the Christian. The return of Jesus, which will be the most awesome and yet terrifying event in all of history, will be for the Christian a moment full of grace full of love, full of excitement, because it's the return of the king in all of his glory and power and wealth and wisdom. This is what's coming to you if you know Christ. And if you do not, then the Bible makes it clear we ought to fear. And this is why Peter tells us to set our hope fully on that grace. It's unshakable, it's imperishable, and yet future. And what we're going to see today briefly is that future grace, the grace that is to come, heaven which is our home, future grace transforms our conduct today. It transforms our lives today. It would be impossible to enjoy myself in the present if I knew I was in huge trouble when mom got back. But if I know that when her return comes with it, grace, sweet grace, well, that changes everything. Future grace transforms our conduct today. So how does our future grace shape our present life? Just two simple points this morning. Peter gives us two answers in the text. He first says, if God is your father, then be holy. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've already spent a little bit of time on this verse. If you want a hope that sustains, a hope that lasts, if you want to experience the peace of putting your hope fully on the grace to come in Christ, then you have to prepare your mind. Prepare your mind and be sober-minded. What does that mean? Well, one of the primary attacks on the Christian faith today is that critics say faith itself is antithetical to thinking, that Christians turn turn off common sense, that we're not good thinkers, and nothing could be further from the truth. Let me just give you a simple example. Uh, Here's here's one example of this. The Bible is over a 1,000 pages long. It has almost 800,000 words, and every single word If you've studied it for any amount of time, you could study it for days. It was written by an extremely diverse group of people. It contains multiple literary genres. It's got narrative and poetry and apocalypse and letter and gospel and prophecy and proverb and songs. It was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And even the Hebrew took different forms because it was written over hundreds of years. And we are thousands of years removed from when the last book of the Bible was even written. So just to understand the book itself with any degree of accuracy and comprehensiveness would take several lifetimes. And we haven't even talked about the intellectual work required to connect the word of God with every other area and study of life. But does that all mean that someone with a simple mind can't be a Christian? No, children, children become Christians. But it does mean that every Christian should be thoughtful. 
that we should be thinkers. Peter says we should all prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. A thinking Christian is the same thing as like a swimming fish. It's just who we are. It's what we do. It's how we're meant to, 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 to live out our faith. It's how we're built. We are meant to think deeply about our faith. Putting our hope fully on Christ takes some mental work. If you're not willing to put in that work, then, you're not, then you won't fully embrace the grace that is yours in Christ. You won't fully be able to realize the peace that comes with that grace and the joy and all the fruits of the Spirit that are already yours in Christ if you're not able or willing to put that mental effort into what God's Word is saying to you. Look at verse 14 then. It takes follow-through, not just mental work, but also follow-through. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There's that word again. Peter calls us children obedient children, and he calls God the Father. What he's saying is, if you're in the family, you represent the family, and you follow the Father's uh, guidance, his wisdom. Our conduct then matters. So since God judges everyone, it says, impartially, we should conduct ourselves with fear. There is a kind of fear that is appropriate for a child before a father. There's a kind of fear that's appropriate for a defendant in a court of law standing before a judge. There's such a thing as authority, even if our culture completely hates and disregards the, the, the whole topic altogether and hates the idea of it, there is this thing called authority, and there's only one with ultimate authority, the one who made it all, the one who created it all, who is sovereign over all. So instead of living for the passions of our former ignorance, we live for holiness. Because our, our Father is holy. The word means set apart. So we should look down on who we were and we should look up to who God is making us to be in Christ. The problem is that I so often find my heart going in the opposite direction. I tend to look down on God's commands and sometimes I tend to look up to my pre-Christian desires, those desires of the old self, greed, Lust, power. We all agree, of course, with the Lord and say these are wrong. It's not how you called us to live as your children, but in our hearts, we still chase after them. We still chase after money. We still chase after pleasure. We still chase after power. Why? Well, because we desire it. Because we love it. Sin, sin would be so easy to overcome if, if we didn't like the taste of it so much. If it was like Brussels sprouts, not the burnt kinds that are good in the restaurants now, but just, just steamed Brussels sprouts, I'd, I'd never eat them. I would have no desire. I, I would be perfect. I would never sin. But unfortunately, it's like whatever your favorite moose tracks thing is. It's like it tastes good. If it didn't taste good, if we didn't love it, if we didn't desire it, then it'd be easy to overcome. And yet sin, it's tempting. 
So we have to come to a place where we see these things, these temptations, these sins that so easily entangle us as futile, he says. Futile. What does that mean? It means we have to grow as children until we see that there is greater pleasure in obedience than there is pleasure in disobedience. Is that what you believe? That there is greater pleasure on the other side of obedience to the Father than there is in the midst of the sin. Have we come to that place in our thinking, in our hearts? You can pick your own struggle. Are you becoming holy as your Father in heaven is holy? Don't buy into that common attitude. I hear it so often, typically from brothers and sisters who are doing something they know is not the way of Jesus. They know it's not the way of the Lord. And they say, you know what? But Jesus still loves me. Jesus loves everybody, so do what you want. Don't justify or downplay your disobedience. Take Peter's conditional clause here. That's, that's the type of sentence he wrote seriously. A conditional clause is an if-then clause. He says, if you call on him as father... If you do this, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God is both our father and our judge. He will judge us according to our deeds. How does that work then with his grace? Well, our gospel-aligned, Christ-honoring deeds are evidence that his grace is transforming us. So listen to this carefully. Listen closely here because this can really mess you up if you get this wrong. Our good doesn't win his grace for us. Our good deeds does not win us God's favor. Only Jesus' death and resurrection has the power to do that. That, that, That's it. Our good, though, demonstrates his grace to us. It doesn't win his grace. It demonstrates his grace. It demonstrates the fact that I have received him and now I'm walking with him. It demonstrates his grace to me. What pulls your heart back to ignorance? What pulls your heart back to those former things? Maybe it's what you're watching. Is television putting distance between you and your sin or between you and Jesus? Maybe it's your clothing. Are you drawing attention to your godly character or to your body? Maybe it's how you spend your money as an exile here on the earth. Do you spend more on your car than you do on gospel mission? I'm not saying any of this to judge you, just questions to ponder and consider to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What pulls your heart, your gaze away from Jesus and back to the things here on the earth? Hebrews 12 Verse 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So pursue holiness, not like a legalistic Pharisee, not to take the place of God and cast judgment on others. Pursue holiness because that's what it looks like to set your hope fully on Christ. That's why we pursue it. It shows we are living for what is to come, not living for the here and now. Now, this is impossible, by the way. This is impossible to live this way, to pursue a holy life apart from the help of the Spirit of Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit. You can't just be better. 
If you leave the sermon today and you're like, okay, I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a better father, a better spouse, a better husband, a better friend, a better worker, a better this. You'll fail utterly because we can't do these things in and of ourselves. We can only do it through the grace given and the strength given in our weakness given by the Holy Spirit. This is our source. This is the one who helps us to actually follow the ways of Jesus and to pursue this type of holiness. We can't do this in our own strength. We have to lean on God's spirit for help. How does our future grace shape our present life? If the Father is holy, be holy. Secondly, if Jesus is your redeemer, be faithful. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, So Peter has told us how we are to live in the spirit. Now he tells us why we should live this way. Because of the precious blood of Christ. How should we live in the spirit? As holy children of the Father. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. Because we've been ransomed. What does that word mean? It means we've been liberated. In the Old Testament, Israel was ransomed, redeemed, liberated from Egypt. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. It is because the Lord Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. There's the word. From the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And chapter 15, verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. So redemption, being ransomed, is about liberation from slavery. For Israel, it was liberation from Egypt. For Christians, it's liberation from sin, from sin itself. Or as Peter puts it here, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, sin has been playing the same game for a really long time, pretty much as long as we've been around. It's the same game, the same thing he's been doing. And if we didn't love it, like I said, we wouldn't do it. We have to recognize it for what it is. Sin is slavery. And we have to recognize we've been purchased out of its grip, out of its grip through the sacrificial blood of Christ. There's only one thing that can ransom you. There's only one thing that can liberate you, that can redeem your life. It's not 12 steps. It's not a diet program. It's not a management class. It's not a yoga pose. It's like what John the Baptist said when Jesus was coming down to the Jordan. Look, look, do you see him? I found him. I found him. Here he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's only one way to be redeemed. There's only one name under heaven by which we are saved. It's through faith in Jesus alone. There are countless versions of Christianity today, many of them heretical. Some would call it progressive Christianity, where any mention, any mention of blood, of sacrifice, or ransom 
is viewed as barbaric. If God is love, then God cannot be this as well. There's no way that Jesus died as God in such a brutal way if God is truly love. Progressive Christianity. They see nothing wrong with our passions. It's people who want a God that conforms to our culture's ever-evolving morality and sensibilities. Don't buy it. Don't buy into it. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not look at your life and see there's nothing wrong with our passions that relate to our old self. They say, people so often say, unless you're conformed to your previous passions, unless you embrace your passions, unless you follow your heart, you'll never really be happy. So only when you're following every desire that you can conjure up in and of yourself, that's what brings you fulfillment. That's what brings you joy. That's what brings you happiness. That is the lie of sin. Listen, Jesus either offers you his blood or he offers you nothing of eternal value. There's no other option. He either offers you his life, his death, his brutal death and resurrection, or he offers you nothing at all. His teaching will do you no good without his death. His life will do you no good without his death. His way will do you no good without his death and resurrection. See, we don't just need a teacher, we need a liberator. We, we need a redeemer. You need someone who has the power to transform your heart. Someone who can free you from slavery. Someone who can replace your greed with generosity, your lust with purity, your anger with patience, your vanity with servitude. There are a million teachers out there. There's really only one redeemer for all of humankind. And without him, the scriptures make it clear that we are enslaved. Look at verse 20 to see how this section closes. He was foreknown, that is, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. He was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. Before the world came into existence, Jesus was already known. For our sake, he came in fulfillment of the Father's plan. That's what Peter is saying here. And if you think your plan for your life is built upon this world and that that will bring you hope, you're not thinking, you're not living, you're stuck in slavery. That leads to disaster. Don't go down that road any longer. And if you know that Jesus is your redeemer, then be faithful. Be faithful to him. With the help of the Spirit, be faithful to the one who died for you. With the help of the Spirit, be faithful to the one who has chosen you. He's forgiven you. He loves you, the one who has redeemed you, the one who secures you, the one who has been gracious to you, the one who has 
uh, who has delivered you, the one who has brought every promise and spiritual blessing of the Father to you through his life and death so that we can hope in a resurrection ourselves. Future grace transforms our conduct today. Care about the election. Care about your marriage. Care about your relationships. Care about your career. Care about your children. But treat all of it as good things, not God's. And if they're just good things in our lives and not God's, then they will never take more residence in our mind or in our heart than that of our Savior Jesus. Nothing will move us off the rock of Christ if he's the one that all of our focus and attention is upon, if that is where our hope fully rests. There's only one God who offers a hope that is more than just a feeling that something good might come from all the bad. There's only one God-man who demonstrated that God's goodness and blessing will be the end of all of this. Our hope in Christ is not insecure expectancy, friends. Our hope in Christ is unshakable fact built upon the empty tomb. It can carry the weight of your life. It can carry the weight of your soul. Trust him. Trust him today. That's our motivation. That is what shapes how we live pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, I want to pray for all those who are here in this room, all those who are watching online, that if your Holy Spirit has convicted their heart today and they have recognized and realized that they have put their hope in things that perish, things of this earth, things of this world, even themselves, and that it does not satisfy, it does not deliver on its promise. And through your spirit, they recognize that today, then give them the courage in this moment to pray to you in their mind, in their heart, Jesus, I put my hope in you alone. You are God in flesh. You came, you lived, you died so that I might find forgiveness and grace you rose again so that I know my hope will be in heaven with you for eternity. I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. And Father, for all those here who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, let our motivation be focused upon the promise of heaven, the hope that is to come, Nothing that we can purchase here, nothing that is temporal. Simply the goodness and greatness of who you are. So Father, now all we can do in response to the hope that is ours in Christ is worship. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.